Welcome back to the Simplifying Investing series for the second episode of Oliver's Insights with AMP's Chief Economist, Dr. Shane Oliver. The federal election campaign is well and truly underway, and the Prime Minister and Opposition Leader are crisscrossing Australia in a bid to win votes ahead of polling day on May 21. While undecided voters are left to ponder who they'd like to see in power, investors have even more questions, like what does the election mean for markets? What policy differences are there between the major parties? And what challenges lie ahead for the next government, no matter who that may be? Shane will take a look at some of these questions and much more. Now, before I hand over to Shane, a quick reminder that this podcast is general in nature and hasn't taken your circumstances into account. It's important you consider your personal circumstances and speak to a financial advisor before deciding what is right for you. Any general tax information provided is intended as a guide only. Thanks, Adam. And thanks for joining everyone today. Uh, This week, we're going to have a look at the 2022 Australian federal election. Uh, I guess someone looking at the Australian political landscape since 2007 would be forgiven for thinking it's it's become a little bit bit less stable than it used to be. That's certainly been the case. We've seen six changes in prime minister since that period. We've seen minority government at times, and we've seen a rise in the importance of independence. This has sort of led to an environment that's made it a bit harder to implement sensible, visionary, long-term policy making. So that's the downside. I guess we have seen a bit of uh, relief over the last three and a half years with Scott Morrison being the longest serving prime minister since John Howard. But naturally, uncertainty is... Uh, rife going into the election campaign and into the election. Um, But I would point out that the differences between the two parties are far less substantial than they were back in 2019. So what are the polls saying? Right now, the polls give Labor a two-party preferred leader of around 54 to 46%. We have seen a slight dip uh, since the start of the election campaign and Labor's primary support has dipped slightly. But bottom line is that the polls have Labor ahead of the coalition. Of course, you need to interpret this a bit cautiously because we all know that going into the 2019 election, those same polls had the ALP ahead and, of course, the coalition won. As my good friend in Canberra, Al Kinlock, who manages government and public policy for AMP, points out around 20% of people only decide how they're really going to vote on election day, you know, once they get into the polling booth, and they often stick with what they know. And on top of that, it's also less clear. This is something Al also points out. It's also less clear in the marginal seats, which is what ultimately counts. Right now, interestingly, betting markets are about line ball, whether it's a coalition or Labor government. So in terms of the share market, there is some evidence of it tracking sideways in the run-up to elections, which may be due to uncertainty. Uh, We've looked at the period since 1983, and if you look at all elections over that period, Um, You do see the share market sort of ranging sideways in the run-up to polls and then rallying once the election is out of the way. Of course, it's all very messy. You know, after the 1983 election, the share market surged. And after the 2007 election, the share market came down because we got hit by the GFC. But the basic picture is one of cautiousness going into elections and then a rally thereafter. Um, In fact, if you go back to the 1983 election, look at all the elections over that period, of which there's been 14, the average gain in the eight weeks prior to the election has just been 1.5%. But the average gain in the three months after the election 
has been 4.5%. Now, I guess perhaps a more interesting issue is how the share market performs after the election if there is a change of government. And of course, we have examples of that back in 1983, change to Labor, similar in 2007, and also in 1996 and 2013 when there was a change to the coalition. On that front, it's a bit mixed. After the 20, 1983 election, shares rallied very strongly. And after the 2007 election, again to Labor, share markets actually fell. But of course, global developments impacted both. We had the recovery globally from recession in the early 1980s, pushing share markets up after the 1983 election. And we had the GFC pushing shares down after the 2007 election. Interestingly, for the coalition wins in 1996 and 2013, share markets were actually flat to down slightly. So I guess the bottom line is it's a bit hard to predict which way markets go if there is a change of government. Australian dollar is fairly similar, a bit of range bound trading in the run up to the election and not much action thereafter. Um, several election where it's gone down, obviously 1983 when the Australian dollar was devalued and then floated thereafter. Um, and then of course, strong gains after ultimately after the 2007 election, but a bit of a mixed bag. So I wouldn't read too much into it for the uh, Australian dollar. In terms of how markets perform under uh, different governments, interesting thing is that looking at all governments um, in the post-war period, so this is since 1944, uh, the average gain under the coalition governments has been 13%. Under Labor, it's been 10%. So that would suggest that the coalition has been better, slightly better than Labor governments have been for the share market. Now, I should point out, though, that Labor governments led by Whitlam and then Rudd and Gillard had the misfortunes of severe global bear markets at the time. So that weighed on those markets. If you focus only on the, say, economic rationalist and reformist Hawke-Keating period, um, the market actually did the best. In fact, the return through that period was 17.2% per annum, which is the strongest for any government uh, in the post-war period. So it's again, it's a mixed bag, but on average, uh, shares have done better under the coalition than under Labor. It's a similar, sto a similar story in relation to the property market, slightly higher returns under the coalition. Since 1980, capital city property prices have averaged 6.6% under the coalition versus 5.2% under Labor. That said, I would point out that the predominant factor there has not been different policies with respect to the property market, but rather the economic cycle and movements in interest rates. I should also point out that uh, often in Australia anyway, not necessarily overseas, but in Australia anyway, it tends to be the case that once a government takes over, they are forced down a fairly centralist path, um, adopting mostly rational policies. And that's because if they want to see living standards rise and then have any prospect of being re-elected, they have to go down a path which is fairly centrist and fairly sensible. So that would all go well for whoever um, takes over uh, once the election occurs. In terms of the policy differences this time around, this gets into the actual situation we're currently facing. I must admit the differences this time around are quite minor. I think we all think of the 2019 election big policy differences between the coalition, the government at the time, and Labor. Labor was offering perhaps a more left-wing reconstructionist approach, uh, bigger government, particularly in the areas of health and education, and that was to be financed by a lot of tax increases um, or removal of tax concessions. There was a 2% tax hike proposed for high-income earners, restricting 
negative gearing to new residential property, halving the capital gains tax discount, stopping cash refunds for excess franking credits and a 30% tax on distributions from discretionary trusts. Now that combination would have led to much bigger government, um, a bigger tax share in the economy. In the event, uh, voters decided it was too much, much as they decided with the economic rationalist policies of John Houston back in 1993, once people got into the polling booth, they decided that's too much. We don't want to go so far to the left. And of course, uh, they opted for the coalition. Having learned from that, the ALP this time around is offering a more modest um, policy agenda. There are some differences, but in the great scheme of things, they're relatively minor. I should point out, out of interest, since the 2019 election, we've had the pandemic that led to a massive surge of government spending. We've also seen a huge ramp up in spending on health, the NDIS, aged and defence, all of which has led to bigger government anyway. So, but of course, we've still got uh, much bigger budget deficits than we envisaged back then. But uh, the policy differences this time around are relatively minor. I think a Labor government would be more interventionist in the economy. It's indicating it will spend more on childcare and the aged. It's talking about a portable system of entitlements for workers in insecure jobs at a time when the coalition is talking about um, going back to their IR reforms, industrial relation reforms that, that were stopped in parliament last year. And these were aimed at reinvigorating enterprise bargaining. So there is a little bit of a difference on industrial relations. In other areas, there's also a bit of a difference on tax. Um, the ALP has indicated it will not necessarily support the coalition's self-imposed cap on tax revenue being 23.9% of GDP, um, and therefore it will allow that to rise beyond that if circumstances arose. But by the same token, they're also promising not to introduce new taxes or increase existing taxes um, beyond an increase in tax on multinationals. So where would the tax revenue come from to take you through the top of the cap? Um, it would basically come from um, uh, drift, where people drift into higher tax brackets and end up paying higher rates of tax without actually changing the tax bracket or the tax rate. So the coalition would be more inclined to hand that back to taxpayers, where Labor is saying, well, perhaps they wouldn't, so they would allow that higher tax payments to come through. Labor is also talking about tighter carbonisation commitments with a faster reduction in emissions by 2030, 43% uh, cut proposed um, below 20, 2005 levels, whereas the coalition is talking about a 26 to 28% cut um, by 2030. So there's obviously differences on that front. But in the great scheme of things, these differences are relatively minor. Um, the similarities are in fact more noticeable. Like the coalition, the ALP is largely seeking to repair the budget through economic growth rather than austerity. I know they're talking about cracking down on waste, but usually, usually both sides of politics say the same thing. You may recall the focus on budget repair in the initial years of the Abbott government back in 2013, 2014 in particular. Um, so often there's a focus on waste, but the ALP is mainly focused on getting the budget under control like the government through economic growth rather than austerity. The five key priority areas of a Labor government, energy, skills, the digital economy, childcare and manufacturing have a big overlap with uh, similar priorities under a coalition government. The only area there which is not the same is childcare. So uh, not much difference there either. Um, weighing it all up, I reckon there might be a bit more nervousness if it looks like Labor will take over in a, in a majority government. Um, but I don't think it would cause a major upset for investment markets. The bigger risk would probably come 
if there's going to be a hung parliament, and I'd refer to, I'm going to talk about that in a moment. What are the key challenges for the next government? I reckon there's three, getting the budget back under control. Um, and of course, uh, we saw the most recent budget project deficits for as far as the eye can see. So that's obviously going to be an ongoing issue going forward. And at some point, will require a serious discussion about spending and taxation in the economy. Boosting productivity growth. Now, this is a big one. One of the reasons the Aussie economy did so well in the, in the 90s and 2000s was because of the economic reforms that were put through, firstly, by the Hawke and Keating governments, and then through the Howard and Costello area, particular, particularly into the 2000s, early 2000s. Since then, we've seen productivity growth wane. Why does that matter? It's basically because growth in productivity or growth in output per hour worked, if you want to put it technically, is what drives growth in living standards and growth in real wages. If we want to see decent growth in living standards and decent real wage growth, we really do need to focus more on boosting productivity, doing things such as reforming the tax system, um, making sure the education system is firing appropriately, industrial relations reform and competition reforms. Unfortunately, either side of politics is offering a lot on those fronts. And finally, the third big issue, I think, is housing affordability. And unfortunately, neither side of politics is, is uh, proposing much on that front either. Well, not that you would regard as having a significant impact. Concluding comment. Basically, I don't see a huge difference between the two sides of politics. I don't see a huge impact on investment markets. The main risk would, would come if neither side of politics, if Labor or the coalition don't get a majority and have to rely on independence. Or, or minor parties, and those minor parties force um, Labor or the coalition down a more radical path. For example, if uh, the Greens uh, you know, agree to a, an arrangement with the ALP, but in return, the Greens demand implementation of the proposed super profit taxes. Now, that, of course, would be taken far more negatively by investment markets, probably the biggest risk running to this election. Hopefully, the Senate would dampen that risk, but it would still be something that I think would cause investment markets some concern if were that to happen. So I hope this has been of value um, and I will leave it there. Speak next time. Dr Shane Oliver there with his insights into the state of play heading into the next general election and beyond. Now to stay up to date on all of the latest from Dr Oliver and the Simplifying Investing series more broadly, subscribe to the podcast series on your favourite streaming platform. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, a quick reminder, all topics discussed today are general in nature and haven't taken your personal circumstances into account. That's why it's important that you seek out tailored financial advice that is relevant to your personal circumstances before making any important financial decisions.